guys and welcome back to History Written by the Losers. I'm Annika. And I'm Sudha. And today we're going to be talking about something that has influenced a lot of the actions that you have seen on the news today, and that is the war on drugs. Now the war on drugs has taken many different forms in many different countries as administrations try to reduce drug usage. In America, we've had laws focused both on supply and demand. In fact, the first anti-opium laws were enacted in the 1870s after the opium wars with China, and these were directed at Chinese immigrants. The first anti-cocaine laws in the early 1900s were directed at black men in the South. The first anti-marijuana laws in the Midwest and the Southwest in the 1910s and 1920s, they were directed at Mexican migrants and Americans of Mexican origin. And because of all of this, today, many Hispanic and black communities are still subject to wildly disproportionate drug enforcement and sentencing practices, especially starting in the 1970s with Richard Nixon. President Nixon formally launched the war on drugs to eradicate illicit drug use in the U.S. Nixon told Congress in 1971, if we cannot destroy the drug menace in America, then it will surely in time destroy us. I am not prepared to accept this alternative. So in 1973, the Drug Enforcement Administration was created, merging the Office of Drug Abuse Law Enforcement, the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, and the Office of Narcotics Intelligence into one administration. So one of the first policies that Nixon uh, enacted was he placed marijuana in Schedule 1, which is the most restrictive category of drugs. And it was supposed to be reviewed by a commission that he had appointed, which was led by Republican Pennsylvania Governor Raymond Schaefer. In 1972, this commission actually unanimously recommended that we should decriminalize the possession and distribution of marijuana for personal use. Nixon, however, ignored this report and rejected the recommendations. In the 1970s, however, 11 states still chose to decriminalize marijuana possession. In fact, in 1977, President Jimmy Carter was inaugurated on a campaign platform that included marijuana decriminalization. In October 1977, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted to decriminalize possession of up to an ounce of marijuana for personal use. However, within just a few years, the tide had shifted. Proposals to decriminalize marijuana were abandoned because parents started becoming increasingly concerned about high rates of teen marijuana use. And that led to marijuana being caught up in a broader cultural movement. And it stayed on Schedule 1. So, in the 80s, with President Reagan, the number of people who were placed behind bars for nonviolent drug law offenses increased. Um, there were about 50,000 people in 1981 and 400,000 by 1997. One of Reagan's biggest policies was cracking down on drug use. The First Lady, Nancy Reagan, began a highly publicized anti-drug campaign, coining the slogan, Just Say No. Los Angeles Police Chief, Darrell Gates, who believed that casual drug users should be taken out and shot, founded the D.A.R.E. drug education program, which was quickly adopted nationwide, despite the lack of any evidence of its effectiveness. This was also part of the increasingly harsh drug policies that blocked the expansion of syringe access programs and other harm reduction policies, 
to reduce the rapid spread of HIV and AIDS. By the late 1980s, there was political hysteria about drugs, which led to the passage of draconian penalties in Congress and state legislatures, and that rapidly increased our prison population. We can see in the data that this cultural movement drastically shifted what Americans thought about drugs. In 1985, only 2-6% to of Americans saw drug abuse as the nation's number one problem. This figure grew until 1989 when it reached a remarkable 64%, one of the most intense fixations by the American public on any issue in polling history. Within less than a year after 1989 though, this figure plummeted to less than 10% as the media lost interest. However, the draconian policies enacted during the hysteria remained. But why was the war on drugs so popular, and why did the American public become so fixated on stopping drug use? And why was the war on drugs such a big deal then, if the public lost interest so rapidly, and if policymakers quickly moved on to other issues? And why does war on drugs rhetoric keep coming back into the narrative? Well, to answer these questions, we really have to look at why the war on drugs was enacted. Obviously, it was important to politicians that we reduce drug usage in America. But if we take a look at a quote from a top Nixon aide, we can begin to understand how the war on drugs began. A top Nixon aide, John Ehrlichman, admitted, You want to know what this was all really about? The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies the anti-war left, and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So, Nixon's top aide admitting that their drug war was actually originated with this idea of disrupting their political enemies may have some truth in it, but it was certainly not the entire truth. Ehrlichman's claim is probably an oversimplification because there are many historians who have studied that period and Nixon's drug policies in particular. Race could have been one part of what was motivating Nixon's drug war, but there are also signs that he wasn't motivated solely by politics or race. He personally despised drugs and he genuinely felt like he was on a crusade against drugs. And his policies were designed largely as public health crusades rather than a punitive drug war. But undoubtedly, the war on drugs has disproportionately hurt Black and Hispanic Americans, especially once it was transformed by the Reagan administration. Even well-meaning policies can have big, terrible consequences, and that is the story of the war on drugs. So let's talk about how the war on drugs has impacted modern policing practices, which has been something very controversial as of late. So statistics say that a black person is five times more likely to be stopped without any just cause than a white person. 
65% of black adults have felt targeted because of their race and approximately 35% of Latino and Asian adults have felt targeted by the police because of their race. The police are very important to public defenders and they do have an important job, but it's important to note that when looking at the data, black and Hispanic people are disproportionately impacted by police and have been disproportionately killed by police. Black people make up only 13.4% of the population, but make up 22% of fatal police shootings. And this does not take into consideration other forms of police brutality, including non-lethal shootings. Unfortunately, many police brutality and fatal police shootings are not prosecuted in criminal court. However, victims and families of victims have been able to pursue civil judgments, but these cost millions of dollars for taxpayers every year. For example, just in New York City, $175.9 million were paid out in civil judgments and claims for police-related lawsuits during 2019. Now, New York City does have the largest police force with 36,000 members serving 8.3 million people, but even so, that is a lot of money. So these biases that we do have are affecting not only the way that we treat many people in America, but it also is affecting how much money we are paying and where our money is going. And the war on drugs does have something to do with how these policing practices got entrenched in our modern risk assessment by police. So the 1994 crime bill was authored by Biden and passed by Clinton. And it, this has been criticized for being very harsh on black communities through more leniency for police and causing modern incarceration problems. The crime bill was very charged and did have a huge impact on communities of color. But this act didn't cause mass incarceration. Mass incarceration has been a problem that has faced our population since the 1970s, according to Hadar Aviram, a law professor at the University of California. But it's also an exemplar for how systemic policies can have unintended consequences. And mass incarceration is another big problem that stems from the war on drugs. So one of the stats that you will see a lot is that despite making up close to 5% of the global population, the US has nearly 25% of the world's prison population. This is insane. Our prison system costs taxpayers $80 billion per year. In 2001, there was a calculated prediction which said that if we continue to incarcerate people at the rate at which we were doing in 2001, in 15 years, the United States would incarcerate as many African-American men as were forced into bondage at the peak of slavery in 1860. Clearly, we have surpassed that number. As of 2016, 2.3 million people were incarcerated in the U.S. at a rate of 698 people per 100,000. One of the biggest problems with mass incarceration is the differentiation between prison and jail. Every year, over 600,000 people enter prison, but people go to jail 10.6 million times every year. 
The number of people in jail is particularly high because most people in jails have not been convicted. They are merely awaiting trials or sentencing. Some who are arrested are easily able to make bail within hours or days, but many other people are too poor to make bail and remain behind bars until their trial. This is an unfortunate consequence of our system that targets poorer people in poorer communities unfairly. There is also an unfortunate cycle here where one in four people who go to jail will be arrested again within the same year and often their infractions have more to do with poverty, mental illness and substance abuse disorders rather than crime. So we can see that our system is continuing this cycle of incarceration without really addressing the root causes. And maybe there is no one solution, but we can be sure that the system that we have currently is not working. Especially because a lot of this incarceration and policing stems from broken policies. If you look at policies that we have in America, Many of them have had unintended or sometimes intended racist consequences. One of the racist policies that we have enacted that targets communities of color have been mandatory minimums against drug offenders, especially the ones that compare usage of crack to usage of cocaine. Now crack and cocaine don't have much difference in their actual structure or health impact. However, crack is more common in black communities and cocaine is more common in white communities. Because of this, a 1986 act created mandatory minimums. One gram of crack was equal to a hundred times the amount in cocaine, which made it much easier for black people to be sentenced to prison, fueling our mass incarceration problem. In 2010, the Fair Sentencing Act helped lessen this gap, but it still remains and it still targets black and Hispanic communities. Five percent of illicit drug users are African American, yet African Americans represent 29 percent of those arrested and 33 percent of those incarcerated for drug offenses. This is definitely a failure of policy. Especially when we realize that 80 percent of people in federal prison are black and Latino. This is not something that is an individual's fault or one community's culture's fault. It is rather a failure of our system to recognize the problems that we have put into these communities and our failure to fix these issues. It is a failure of our government in criminalizing things in different ways to target communities of color. With mandatory minimums, research shows that prosecutors are twice as likely to pursue a mandatory minimum sentence for black people as for white people, even if they are charged with the same offense. Among people who received mandatory minimum sentences, 38% were Latino and 31% were black. This situation also affects people who aren't fully American citizens yet. More than 250,000 people were deported from the United States for drug law violations between 2007 and 2012 alone. And deportations for drug possession increased by 43% from 2007 to 2012. Simple marijuana possession was the fourth most common cause of deportation. So marijuana poses a different challenge now because we do know that medical marijuana 
is a valid way to control chronic pain, especially for patients with cancer. So as of now, at the federal level, it still remains classified as a Schedule 1 substance under the Controlled Substances Act. Schedule 1 substances are supposed to have high dependency potential and need to be regulated strictly. In January 2018, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions issued a marijuana enforcement memorandum that allowed the federal prosecutors a lot of leeway in deciding how to prioritize enforcement of this federal law, even in states where uh, state laws had passed legal marijuana possession. So marijuana becoming more and more acceptable as recreational slash medical use also has its origin in race because it is a drug that has been used for cancer patients and survivors and there has been a lot of activism surrounding it in white communities and so it is rapidly losing its criminalization. So if we take a look at how different administrations have handled the war on drugs, obviously we started with Nixon and we moved on through Carter through Reagan. Bill Clinton advocated for treatment instead of incarceration during his 1992 presidential campaign, but he also reverted to the war on drug strategies, very similar to his Republican predecessors. Notoriously, Clinton rejected the U.S. Sentencing Commission's recommendation to eliminate the disparity between crack and powder cocaine sentences that I mentioned previously. George W. Bush, in his time, also witnessed rapid escalation of the militarization of domestic drug law enforcement. By the end of Bush's term, there were about 40,000 paramilitary-style SWAT raids on Americans every year, mostly for non-violent drug law offenses, often misdemeanors. Looking at President Obama, despite supporting several successful policy changes like reducing the crack and powder cocaine sentencing disparity, ending the ban on federal funding for syringe access programs, and ending the federal interference with state medical marijuana laws, did not shift the majority of public policy funding towards a health-based approach, which is one that many scientists and researchers accept as the proper way to treat drug abuse and substance abuse now. And under our current administration, our current president has called for harsher sentences for drug law violations and in fact has also espoused the death penalty for people who sell drugs. While some of these may be exaggerations, we have to realize that the only way to properly address the drug abuse and drug problem in our country is to address the problems that have led to what we are dealing with today. So if we don't realize that previous politicians and previous policies have changed the way that we deal with drugs and the way that we criminalize drugs and the ways that we attack people who use drugs, then there's no way that we can move forward to reduce drug use and reduce prison populations and reduce sentencing of people who are unfairly charged for drug use. So although we may not know it, a lot of us do have a bias against certain communities. And this bias is based on what we see, which is when we see our prisons filled with 
disproportionate amount of black people or Hispanic people and we see a disproportionate number of Hispanic or black people being accused of and being sentenced for drug possession, this perpetuates the stereotype in our brains. We need to look beyond that to understand why these people have become targeted and criminalized in our society and what are the policies that have led to this rather than looking at the surface and making assumptions based on it. So we encourage you to look inwards at your own biases and to look at the current problems that are afflicting our society today and try to understand how the history of the war on drugs has affected the way that we view certain people and certain things and how we can use that history to move forward into a better world. Thank you guys so much for listening to History Written by the Losers. Make sure you subscribe and leave a comment if you enjoyed. Since this episode is coming out at the end of October, we want to remind you all that if you live in America, election day is coming up and make sure that you have a plan to vote so that we can all move into a better world together. Go out and vote. This has been History Written Written by by the the Losers. Losers.